Hello, I'm Kevin Fernando, a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to our new GP Notebook podcast, a bite-sized, regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Today, we will be covering some tips and hacks on the prevention and treatment of osteoporosis and fragility fractures. So, we have Rosemary, a 59-year-old married medical receptionist with several successful years' experience at blocking access to GP appointments. She has no personal history of fractures, but her mother had a hip fracture in her early 50s. Rosemary underwent the menopause age 51 years of age and has never had any HRT. She's on no current medication, either prescribed or over-the-counter. She drinks alcohol within recommended limits and she's a non-smoker. And her current BMI is 22.8. So Rosemary tells us that she's worried she might fracture her hip like her mother. So should we offer Rosemary a fracture risk assessment? Osteoporosis is common and osteoporotic fractures are an important cause of both morbidity and also actually mortality too. Studies have demonstrated that those who suffer hip and vertebral fractures have a reduced life expectancy compared to control individuals. At the age of 50, one in three women and one in five men will suffer a fracture in their remaining lifetime, and approximately half of those who have already sustained one osteoporotic fracture will have a further fracture. Management, however, of osteoporosis has been a perennially challenging area for us in primary care. A triple whammy of who to assess for fracture risk and how often to do this. Who should we treat to reduce future fracture risk and with what agent? And how long should we treat individuals for? Further muddying the waters, we have three conflicting guidelines. We have NICE guidelines published in 2012, Scottish Sign Guidelines published in 2015, and recently updated NOG, National Osteoporosis Guideline Group guidelines published during 2017. So you can see it's a real minefield out there when it comes to managing osteoporosis in primary care. This is partly driven by the fact that osteoporosis and prevention of fragility fractures is a real evidence black hole with very few high quality, robust data and a real reliance on expert opinion, which we all know is much lower in the evidence right hierarchy, what I like to call gobsat, good old boys sat around the table. That said, the recent NOG guidance does do a reasonable job of reviewing the available evidence and offering us in primary care some pragmatic recommendations. So I'm going to focus on the NOG 2017 guidelines and draw in uh, some relevant recommendations from the NICE and side guidelines too. So first question, who should we assess for fracture risk? Will NOG tell us that fracture probability should be assessed in postmenopausal women and in men aged 50 years or more who have risk factors for fracture? So, what are these risk factors for fracture? 
Well, the SIGN 2015 guidance actually gives us a useful table with a range of non-modifiable and modifiable risk factors, as well as comorbidities and drug therapies that should prompt consideration of a fracture risk assessment. So, starting with the non-modifiable risk factors, these include a previous fragility fracture, a parental history of osteoporosis, as is the case with rosemary, or untreated early menopause below the age of 45. Modifiable risk factors include a low BMI less than 20, over the age of 50 and current smoker, and over the age of 50 with an alcohol intake of more than 3.5 units daily. Comorbidities to take into account uh, that may prompt a fracture risk assessment include diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, and any malabsorption syndromes, primary hyperparathyroidism, chronic liver disease, and chronic kidney disease. And very interestingly, Sign gave us a list of drug therapies that should also prompt consideration of fracture risk assessment. These were many therapies I, I was previously unaware that raised the, the risk of osteoporosis. So first of all, those over 50 on long-term antidepressants or on anti-epileptics. Women over 50 on aromatase inhibitors. So that's drugs such as anastrozole, letrozole and exemestane. Women who have been using Depo-Provera for over two years, uh, this should also prompt a consideration of a fracture risk assessment, though the impact on bone density is reversible. Men over 50 diagnosed with prostate cancer and on GnRH agonists such as goserelin also consider a fracture risk assessment. PPIs, proton pump inhibitor therapy, in those over 50 is also a risk factor for osteoporosis. So indeed, reduced bone density joins other emerging harms of PPIs, including pneumonia, C. diff infection, hypomagnesemia, and vitamin B12 deficiency. <laughs> That's a podcast for another time. Incidentally, PPIs are thought to affect osteoclast activity, potentially increasing bone resorption. Finally, anyone on oral steroids and anyone over 50 on pyoglitazone, we should also consider a fracture risk assessment. So a very useful series of risk factors for osteoporosis. So next question, how to assess for fracture risk? Well, the NOG 2017 guidance recommend we use the FRAX tool the Fracture Risk Assessment Tool. This was launched by Sheffield University during 2008 and gives us a 10-year probability of both hip fracture and major osteoporotic fracture. FRAX can be used worldwide. It's been validated for use in several different countries, including the United Kingdom. It can be used for people aged 40 to 90 years of age and incorporates 11 risk factors for fracture. But notably, it does not include a measurement of frailty as a risk factor. Helpfully, it does incorporate a measurement of bone mineral density. That is to say, a T-score from a recent DEXA scan. But don't worry, we'll be talking more about this later. And FRAX also helpfully links directly to the NOG 2017 guidance to provide guidance and recommendations on whether any further investigation or treatment is required. So 
we plug Rosemary's figures into FRAX, and that gives us a 10-year probability of a major osteoporotic fracture of 10% and a 10-year probability of hip fracture of 1%. So what is the implication of, of this for Rosemary? Well, helpfully on FRAX, there's a wee box labeled view NOG guidance, which we can click on, and that takes us straight to the NOG website where we are given uh, advice, recommendations on any further investigations required or indeed any treatment. And in Rosemary's case, it puts her in the intermediate risk zone. So this suggests that she needs further bone mineral density assessment. That is to say, she needs referral for a DEXA scan, and then we need to recalculate a fracture risk with FRAX to guide any onward treatment required. If she came back in the low risk zone, the green zone, then the recommendation is to reassure her, offer a lifestyle advice, which I'll come back to shortly, but importantly, to reassess a risk in five years or less, depending on individual circumstances. If, however, she came back in the high-risk zone or the red zone, then we should consider treatment empirically for her without the need for any further bone mineral density assessment. So very clear recommendations from the NOG website. So well worth using both the FRAX tool and also the NOG website. So what lifestyle measures should we discuss with Rosemary to improve her bone health? We should discuss increasing physical activity, specifically weight-bearing exercise, muscle-strengthening exercises, and also balance training. So interventions such as Tai Chi can be helpful to discuss here. We should discuss smoking cessation and reducing alcohol intake to less than two units daily. And we should also ensure that rosemary is adequate dietary calcium intake. Current recommendation is around 700 milligrams daily. Now, there's a number of online calcium calculators. The one I tend to use is on the International Osteoporosis Foundation website. Uh, and uh, notably, uh, some foodstuffs and their calcium content uh, can be uh, very interesting. 200 mils of milk contains 240 milligrams of calcium. 150 grams of natural yogurt contains 207 milligrams of calcium. Whereas completely unaware that one can of sardines in oil is very high in calcium, also about 240 milligrams of calcium, whereas the vegetables, broccoli and cress, also have a naturally high calcium content. And the final piece of, sort of lifestyle discussion we need to mention is vitamin D supplementation, consistent with public health recommendations. Now, this is definitely a podcast for another time and another complete minefield, both vitamin D supplementation and testing. We have clear guidance from our chief medical officer in, in Scotland recommending that all individuals in Scotland should consider taking 10 micrograms or 400 international units of vitamin D, especially during the winter months. There's also a recommendation to take supplementation year-round uh, for women who are pregnant or breastfeeding, those who are over 65, children under the age of five, anyone with limited sun exposure, and any individuals from minority ethnic groups with dark skin. However, our CMO is quite clear, however, that we should not be prescribing this vitamin D and we should instead recommending it to be purchased over the counter. 
So Rosemary, of course, did come back, though, in the intermediate risk zone. So she does need referral for a DEXA scan. So that's what we did. We referred her for a DEXA scan. Nine months later, she had that DEXA scan and the T-score returned at as minus 2.9 at the hip. So just a quick reminder, a T-score of minus 1 to minus 2.5 is suggestive of osteopenia or pre-osteoporosis and a T-score of less than minus 2.5 is suggestive of osteoporosis. So Rosemary indeed is in the osteoporotic range. So as recommended by NOG, we recalculate a FRAX score incorporating this T-score and then click through again to the NOG website where we're given treatment recommendations. And in this occasion, Rosemary is clearly in the high-risk red treat zone because she has a high probability of either a major osteoporotic fracture or a hip fracture. And NOG recommend we should strongly consider treatment. So what should we treat with? Well, NOG recommend first line, we should be using alendronate or residronate for the majority of individuals like rosemary requiring treatment. Residronate tends to be better tolerated in those with any pre-existing gastrointestinal symptoms, for example, dyspepsia. Second and third line treatments are largely going to be specialist initiated, we have options such as intravenous oslendronate or denuzumab, which is a monoclonal antibody given subcutaneously every six months. Also, we can consider raloxifene or HRT or even teriparatide, which is synthetic PTH. We did have another option we could use in primary care called strontium, but this was withdrawn from the market during August 2017 because it was found to be associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So we mutually agree with Rosemary to commence her on alendronate. However, she comes back to see you a few weeks later complaining of heartburn, which is worse after taking her alendronate. What do we do next? Well, here I wanted to quickly discuss uh, the use and safety of bisphosphonates based on a couple of relatively recent MHRA drug safety alerts published during 2014 and 2015. So first of all, we need to reinforce the importance of the correct administration of a bisphosphonate. And this is a real bugbear, isn't it, for many of our individuals. Bisphosphonates need to be taken alone on an empty stomach with at least a couple hundred mils of water and at least 30 minutes before any other food, drink or medications. Additionally, individuals should stand or sit upright for at least 30 minutes after administration. So a real palaver for most individuals to take a bisphosphonate. Notably, bisphosphonates and denuzumab are contraindicated in hypocalcemia. So we do need to check baseline bloods before starting bisphosphonates, UNEs and calcium levels. Now, as we all know, one of the main side effects of bisphosphonates, as Rosemary is experiencing, is esophagitis. Now, oral bisphosphonates are contraindicated in those with esophageal abnormalities that delay emptying, for example, esophageal stricture. So what we do need to do is to reinforce the, import reinforce the importance of taking them correctly and importantly, 
PPIs or ranitidine are unlikely to be helpful in with symptoms of esophagitis as these symptoms are due to a direct local chemical irritant effect of the bisphosphonate molecule rather than overproduction of acid. So this is a very useful quality improvement activity for us all to consider in primary care. Look at your registers of people on bisphosphonates and say PPIs or ranitidine. Is that gastric protection really required? Secondly, the MHRA also warned us about a rare association with atypical femoral fractures with bisphosphonates. And we should be advising individuals on bisphosphonates to report any unexplained thigh, hip or groin pain. Furthermore, the MHRA also warned us about rare associations of osteonecrosis of the jaw as well as osteonecrosis of the external auditory canal with bisphosphonates. So again, we need to advise individuals to have regular dental checkups and also to report any unexplained ear pain or discharge. And finally, we have reports of a rare association with atrial fibrillation and bisphosphonates, but reassuringly, no differences in cardiac death or venous thromboembolism. So as you can see, the the bisphosphonates are not without their harms and as always when prescribing any drug we need to ensure that the benefits of treatment do continue to outweigh any harms. So we mutually agree to switch Rosemary from Alendronate to Residronate which she tolerates much better. You don't see her for a wee while but she does return to see you several years later inquiring whether she still needs to take a Residronate. So how would you advise her? Would you stop her residronate and reassess her fracture risk at some point in the future? Would you continue her residronate and reassess her therapy in around about three to five years? Would you consider a drug holiday? Or perhaps would you just flip a coin? <laughs> and we have had some somewhat conflicting recommendations on the duration of bisphosphonate therapy. And I'm going to take you through just now what the NOG guideline recommends. So NOG 2017 recommends review treatment after three years of zolendronate therapy or after five years of oral bisphosphonate therapy. And this treatment review should consist of a rescoring of fracs in addition to a further assessment of bone mineral density. So that is to say, Rosemary will need a repeat DEXA scan. Then we can click through uh, to the NOG website again for any treatment recommendations. And importantly, there's no current evidence for continuing treatment past 10 years. And this should very much be an individualized decision. Now, the NICE Multimorbidity Guideline, NG56, published in 2016, gives us a very helpful and holistic recommendation about the use of bisphosphonates in the context of multimorbidity. NICE explicitly tells us in the context of multimorbidity, we should consider stopping bisphosphonate therapy after just three years, taking into account, of course, patient choice, fracture risk, and life expectancy. NICE tell us there's no consistent evidence after three years for the ongoing benefit of bisphosphonates or indeed any harm after stopping. So another great idea for a quality improvement activity in primary care, especially uh, when trying to reduce polypharmacy. Look at all of your patients with multimorbidity, 
on bisphosphonates uh, and make uh, a, a mutual decision on whether to continue that bisphosphonate or indeed stop it after just three years. Now, within the NOG 2017 guideline, there is a useful algorithm which essentially summarizes everything we've talked about over the last 15 minutes or so. So you may want to consider downloading that algorithm, even laminating it and having it on your wall. So based on that NOG 27 guideline, it's mutually agreed with Rosemary to stop a residronate and to reassess a fracture risk in three years' time. And of course, we take the opportunity again to reinforce those all-important lifestyle measures to maintain her bone health. However, just as she's leaving your room, a hand tantalizingly close to your door handle, Rosemary asks you, should I continue to take my calcium and vitamin D supplements? How would you advise her? Again, this is an area bereft of high quality evidence, but what NICE 2017 recommends is that for postmenopausal women and men over the age of 50 receiving bone protective therapy for osteoporosis, we should consider calcium supplements if dietary intake is less than 700 milligrams a day. Furthermore, for postmenopausal women and men over the age of 50, receiving bone protective therapy for osteoporosis, we should consider 800 international units or 20 micrograms of vitamin D daily if that individual is at risk of or we have evidence of vitamin D insufficiency. So actually, chatting to Rosemary and perhaps using one of these online calcium calculators I briefly mentioned, her dietary intake of calcium seems to be adequate, certainly over that 700 milligram uh, a day figure. So therefore, consistent with NOG 2070 guidance, I prescribed rosemary 800 international units, 20 micrograms of vitamin D daily, but mostly because she lives in Scotland. <laughs> so thank you for listening all. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcasts, which are available on all major platforms. Get in touch via social media if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our 2020 GP Notebook Clinic events, launching 25th of February in Glasgow and then touring across the UK. You can also download our free GP Notebook shortcuts to make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. <laughs>